Good morning, everybody. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it is a sincere honor to be with you this morning and to continue uh, the series through Acts we've been in now since, gosh, September? Mid-September, maybe? Um, we are going to jump into chapter 6, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, turn there. That's where we'll be. And in the meantime, I just want to start with a question. One question. Can, can the majority cultural group within a church community, though it may be well-meaning, it may be good-hearted, find itself neglecting part of its family unintentionally? Can that happen? Yeah, what's the answer? Yeah, it was a rhetorical question, but I'll, I'll, I'll allow the answer. It's the right answer. Um, yes, yes. The, the, the majority cultural group, uh, by whatever metric you want to look at, um, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about socioeconomic position, uh, whether we're talking about age, interests, marital status, married versus single, temperament, I will, whatever it may be, along each of these lines, uh, when, when there's division, neglect can creep in. When there's difference, neglect can creep in. And when neglect creeps in, division creeps in. Most of the time in the church, this is, well, pr- probably most of the time in the church, this is unintentional. It's not necessarily that, that people are intentionally going out of their way to marginalize and discredit and ignore uh, groups within the church community, but it's something far more innocuous and uh, seemingly benign, but just as destructive. And the end result of this sort of thing uh, is the church loses its ability to full case in its fullness what Jesus is like how the God of the universe views people in all their diversity, how he cares for people in all their diversity. I think we should pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, Lord. I know that as I I studied it, I found myself convicted at almost every turn. primarily individually for myself, Lord, but certainly for our, our church as a whole, and even for my role as, as a leader in this church. Um, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through this text, convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge us where we need to be challenged, uh, and then inspire us, Lord, toward how we might better represent you to a world that desperately needs you and desperately needs to believe that your gospel is good news for it. We need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 picks up with a a situation just like this, just like we're talking about. And to just catch you up, the story of Acts, it's crazy. We now, chapter 6, scholars, a lot of scholars believe, is about five years after Pentecost. That's crazy, right? I don't know how many times I have to remind myself, Acts covers about 30 years of early church history. 
But every time I read it, it feels like we're reading about a couple of weeks. <laughs> like, it does not feel like five years could have passed from Pentecost we covered in September. Uh, but it has. It has. Um, and the, the history of the church so far has, is, is kind of in phase one of what Jesus foretold and even commanded his disciples to do, which is, he said, you're going to be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then to all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It's going to be this concentric outgrowth of the gospel being proclaimed to people, starting here, moving to here, and then to everywhere. And so far in the story, it's been pretty well contained to Jerusalem. Uh, Five years in, the church is growing. You hear Peter preach a radical sermon. 2,000 people come to the faith. They're baptized, and they begin to integrate into the church community. And it's blowing out into all these little house church expressions. And they're gathering at the temple, and they're doing all this amazing stuff. Then another sermon's preached, and this huge new gathering of people comes in, and they join the community. But with each step of this, we're going to see, not necessarily every step, but at, at a bunch of them, with people comes new challenges. With new people comes new challenges and new potentials for conflict. Um, and this is one of those steps in the process where the church butts up against something ugly in its midst. And they have to quickly decide to deal with it. Or else it's going to undermine their ability to show the world who Jesus really is and what he's like. So what's going on in verse 1? Let's just read it. Here's the problem. It says, Now in these days... Luke's kind of letting us know, okay, we're now kind of in a new time period here. He's he's maybe made a jump from the last story. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We need to just pause for a second and unpack some of this situation because so much of it is foreign to our experience, like, Half the phrases in this sentence were kind of like, what? What's that? So, first of all, remember, what we're talking about here is Jewish Christians in Jerusalem sorting out their church life together. And so amongst these Jerusalem Jewish Christians, we see two groups. The first group mentioned were called the Hellenists. Hellenists. Uh, This is referring to Probably, okay, so Israel was taken into exile by the Babylonians. That's one of the last major stories of the Old Testament. And then they were brought back in at a certain point, but some of the Jews stayed out scattered. This is called the diaspora, or the dispersion of Jews. And they formed new homes and new communities outside of the land. Um, And so probably these Hellenists, or as the NIV translates, I think it's a little clearer, the Hellenistic Jews, These are probably Jews who grew up outside of the land of Israel, developed their own customs. They primarily spoke Greek, most likely. Um, And they had just a bit of a different way of expressing their Judaism and then possibly their Christianity once they became followers of Jesus. So that's the Hellenists. These are Greek-speaking, Greek-enculturated Jews who have Greek customs. The other group refers to as the Hebrews. Hebrews were, or Hebraic Jews, as the NIV puts it. I like that translation as well. It gives us a little more clarity. These were the guys and gals who stayed in Israel, 
remain thoroughly Jewish in their, thoroughly Hebrew in their customs. They probably spoke Aramaic as their primary language. And so these are the two groups. All right, you got that? We've got, a, we've got two groups. Uh, it's not a racial division, but it's a cultural and perhaps a linguistic division between these two groups of Christians now here in Jerusalem. So the issue is over, it says, the daily distribution. So what is that about? Well, uh, what we see, what we infer here is that the early church uh, was very good at taking care of its people. We've seen that throughout Acts. Uh, we, we saw in Acts 2, they had all things in common. Uh, as needs arose, the community would be quick to sell what they had and give to the person that was in the most present need. Um, later on, we see them doing a similar practice. Everyone's selling their stuff and putting it in common so that the people that need it can take it. And this is another practice that the, that the early church was part of. It was some sort of daily distribution, specifically to widows. So it may have been food, it may have been money, it may have been both. It doesn't tell us here explicitly. But they had a practice daily of providing for the widows inside the church community. Another question comes up. Why widows? Why widows? That's kind of random and specific, isn't it? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament... The heart of God was revealed from earliest days that he cares deeply for the most vulnerable and oppressed in any given society. And amongst his people, the people of Israel, they're going to be taken care of. And the two groups that get highlighted most and most specifically are widows and orphans. Widows and orphans. Why? Why widows? Why orphans? Well, these were the two groups... uh, uh, Certainly not a good thing, but it's just a state, an observational statement. These were the two groups that were most economically vulnerable in the day. So when, let's take women, for example. Women were typically not allowed to own property. They were typically um, raised you know, in their father's house. Then when they were married, they lived in part of a house that belonged to their husband. So when the husband died, often there was no control of that property, there was no ability to you know, provide financially for oneself, and they were sort of left vulnerable. If the family wasn't present and able to take care, uh, there was really no financial option, even more so for children that find themselves in the same situation, familyless. So in this ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, to be an orphan or a widow is essentially to be helpless, to actually provide for yourself. And that's dark. That's the scenario. But it should not be so amongst the church or even ancient Israel. And so we see the early church, you know, especially this Jerusalem church, it's carrying a bunch of its Old Testament Jewish practices into its Christianity, and I think rightly so. And this is one example. But it's not just the fact of tradition carrying over. Even James in his letter, you guys remember this verse, James 1.27? He says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is also a distinctly Christian principle that these two groups deserve our attention as a church community. I think the broader principle is the most vulnerable deserve our attention as a church community. So here's the issue. The Hebrew widows, 
the Aramaic-speaking, culturally Hebrew widows were being taken care of daily, having their needs met. The Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultural widows, were being ignored. And it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to see what kind of frustration and infighting a situation like that would spill out into a church community. Does it? No. No. The church was failing to care for some of its most vulnerable. And there's debate about whether this was intentional. Some have interpreted this text as sort of a willful bigotry, as the Hebrews didn't like these Greek Christians, uh, uh, I should say Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Uh, They didn't like their culture. They didn't like what they were importing into the church community, and so they were willfully neglecting their widows. I don't know that the text bears that out, in my opinion, based on how the apostles respond and and just the shape of the story. What it seems more likely to me uh, is that this was unintentional. It was a blind spot. You know, these... Some of these women maybe didn't speak Aramaic and there was a communication barrier. Out of sight, out of mind, I'm not hearing about the need, so I'm not thinking about it. And the result is people are going hungry. People are going hungry. To put it in terms of kind of our our current sociological language, this may have been a case of Hebrew privilege in this early Jerusalem church. I think that's probably fair to say. They don't have to worry about the problems of these Greek-speaking widows. Out of sight, out of mind. And the reality is, we all, as individuals in the church community, and as a church community as a whole collective, we all have blind spots like these. If it could happen in the apostolic church, when it feels like the Spirit is just constantly moving and doing crazy, powerful things constantly, and the gospel is being received for the first time, it's being understood, and it's being preached, and it's being proclaimed, and there's this loving vitality and life amongst the church community. If it can happen then and there, it can happen now. It can happen now. Some of you may feel that you've, in fact, been the victim of this sort of thing in church experiences, perhaps here at Door of Hope. That your needs aren't being considered or cared for. And so I think we all individually need to, before the Lord, pray and consider, where are my blind spots? Who are the people that I'm not able to see, the needs I'm not able to consider, merely because of my background, merely because of my interests, merely because of my friend circle, or whatever it may be. And you get enough individuals with these issues, and you combine that into a community, you've got a recipe for disaster. But why does this matter? This matters because the church is the family of God. Paul's going to develop the theology of the church later on. He's going to tell us in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the church. Revelation shows us the the future of the church, the future of the people of God is worshiping people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It is a diverse people, and those diversities are celebrated. But the key point of unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ that transcends any barrier that this fallen world could throw at us. 
And when the church lives like that, and it takes effort to live like that, it takes the Spirit's empowerment to live like that, it becomes a testimony to the watching world of what the God of the universe thinks about people. Does Jesus Christ privilege one group above another? No. Is Jesus Christ more interested in the needs of one group over another? No. But if we, as the visible representation of the kingdom of God here on earth, act that way, we're testifying to the people who are watching, yeah, that's what God's like. And it might not be such good news for you. That's why this matters. There can be extreme versions of it, painful versions of it. There can be dumb versions of it. I'm sure I've contributed to some painful ones. I'd rather share a story of a dumb one. So that's what I'm going to do. When I, I was a youth pastor for four years uh, in Arkansas um, years ago. And, uh, I, okay, you, you just need to know this about me. This, this is the background to the story. I love Batman. Great, great superhero. Best superhero? I'd make the case. Um, and, uh, okay, backstory to the backstory. In college, I worked for about a year at American Eagle uh, clothing store. And the first Halloween I worked there, I had this goofball manager who told me that he would let me come to work dressed in a full head-to-toe Batman costume. Uh, and I said, well, if I do that, would you let me dance in the window to try to lure, seduce people into the store? I said, Cameron, yes, I would. I would allow that. So I said, I better get a Batman costume then. So I went and did, put something together, something last minute, low budget. I thought it was a sound business practice, good for our company for me to do this, so I, I went in. Uh, and then every year since then, I don't know how many years it's been now, 10 or 11, I have been nothing but Batman for Halloween. My thinking on this is I can't afford, you know, the epic movie-accurate Batman suit. You know, those things cost hundreds of dollars, whatever. But if I piece it together one year at a time, I'm going to end up with something glorious. I'm playing the long game, people. <laughs> so each year I'd add, you know, upgrade the cape, get a better utility belt. Um, one year uh, I accidentally... Yeah, I'll share this. I accidentally bought... Uh, Fetish boots. Now, uh, on Amazon it just said superhero boots. And I, so I was like, these look perfect. These are just like the Dark Knight movie. This will be amazing. This is what I need. I can't be trouncing around in these rain boots that I've been wearing. Uh, but the box they came in told another story. Uh, but I kept them. They're great. They're great Batman boots, you know. <laughs> the saddest one was the saddest one was uh, my last upgrade, perhaps final upgrade, because I'm growing up, people. You know, you leave childish things behind at some point. I I got also on Amazon real gauntlets with metal blades sticking out of the sides, and like a hard plate, so you can like protect against swords. So I probably find myself in that scenario a lot. And uh, it all happened last Halloween. We had our son a few months prior. And I remember suiting up. We were going to a Halloween party. I was like, yeah, my, oh, my one time where it's culturally appropriate to be Batman. Let's do this. 
And uh, I remember having the whole thing on. I reached down to pick up my infant son and just noticed, like, knives jutting off of my forearms and realized, well, that's over. (laughs) Took them off. And, uh, you know, what's the point of upgrading the suit anymore? Um, This is a long sidebar. Here's the point. You decide if it was worth it. Um... I shoehorned that stupid Batman costume into so many things for our students when I was a youth pastor. Every promotional, we'd make these little goofy videos to promote summer camp and retreats and stuff like that. Every time it was me like coming up with an arbitrary scenario where we could make this Batman video. Uh, I showed up to Sunday services sometimes as Batman. We'd be at camp. I'd put the Batman suit on and like, try to scare kids in the middle of the night. Like The whole deal. And this was not an instance of me like reading the room and feeling like, oh man, these kids are going to really be enchanted by this. This is going to be wonderful. I think mostly they just thought it was kind of weird and creepy that I did it. Um, but my point is this. That's a silly example of, of what happens all the time. We take our interests, we take our you know, pet things, we elevate them, and we don't stop to consider what, what does the community actually need? What's actually helpful? What's actually edifying? Stupid, goofy in this scenario, but you blow this out a few steps down the road and, and you can really start hurting people and start sending messages that are actually damaging to the unity of a church. And so that is the issue. That's the issue at play here. Will the, new, will the early church in Acts 6 be able to rise above uh, their, their blind spots and cultural biases, perhaps, and actually model the church effectively to the watching world. That's what's at stake in this passage. So what do they do? Verses 2 through 4. They have a proposal. They say this, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I think it's important, first of all, to say what this this text doesn't teach. Because as me and Josh talked about this, and I've heard him talk about this text on multiple occasions, um, he he shares my concern that this is a text that has been and can be easily misconstrued to say church leaders don't really need to be amongst the people. And we can all probably think of examples of people, um, and maybe we've been those people from time to time, where uh, you know, the leader of a church, the leader of a business, insert a scenario, but you always know, uh, you'll have probably something in mind, an example of someone isolating themselves from the community, going into the ivory tower, thinking through things, and then making decisions that affect people that they really don't have any firsthand experience, how it's going to play out. Is it a wise choice? What's going to happen here? And so me and Josh would both say, whatever's going on in this text, to interpret it as the apostles saying, you know what, we're not going to mess with this boring stuff with the people. We don't care about that. We need to just focus on this, I think is missing the heart. And I'll argue for that. First of all, I think because uh, when you look at the word pastor, which is one of the terms, which is one of the kind of gifts of the Spirit, 
Spirit gives to build up the church. The word pastor specifically, literally translates shepherd. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphorical term in the Greek. So a shepherd, by definition, is amongst the sheep. It knows the sheep. It follows the sheep around. It's protecting the sheep. It's caring for the sheep. It's mending the sheep's injuries. Uh, it stinks like the sheep. I read a book by that title. Um, a shepherd is with the sheep. Um, that, is, that is the point of the metaphor. Number two, the key Christian leaders of the New Testament don't model this for us. Think of Jesus. Did Jesus have an aloof ministry cut off from the people? Did he refuse to get his hands dirty? Was he out there making decisions and teachings based on his imaginings of what people are like? Or was he actually out amongst the people day in and day out? I think that's pretty clear. Even the apostles up to this point uh, and continuing through Acts, they don't model this sort of cold detachment. Paul, in his advice to the church planner Timothy in the letters of First and Second Timothy, his advice is all about working with people. Sure, it's about preaching as well, but certainly a major theme is how do you care for people in the midst of this crazy thing we call church? It's all about the community working out life together. And we can just intuitively, again, learn from the... <laughs> we learn from this experience when this is done poorly. The whole TV show The Office is based on the premise of a boss who sort of is aloof and detached and doesn't really know what's going on with his company and his employees, who emerges from his office, and when he does with some harebrained idea, it's always bad news for The Office because Michael has no idea what they actually are doing, what they need to be doing, and what's actually going to be helpful as they're trying to sell paper. The heartbreak of the office is that Michael's this like wounded puppy dog who wants nothing more than to be connected to the people. He wants everyone to love him. He wants friends. He wants community. But he self-sabotages it at every step. A more serious example, one example that just came to mind for me is from the movie The Thin Red Line. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's 1998, kind of experimental war movie by Terrence Malick. Um, it's an amazing movie. I know what you're getting into before you watch it. It's very sad and very intense. I heard it once described as the only war movie convincingly portrayed from God's perspective. I think that's true. You get internal monologues, almost prayers of all the characters from both sides of the battle in the Pacific during World War II um, and basically examine from in the interior of each character the toll that war is taking on their spirit. It's heartbreaking. It's a beautiful movie. It's, it's really sad. But Nick Nolte plays this lieutenant. I love that picture. That sums up his character. Plays this uh, lieutenant colonel whose whole agenda in the movie is to advance his glory. He wants to be the one who's made the courageous push through Guadalcanal, finished the skirmish, who's taken the, the ground that's going to actually get the American army strategically positioned to, to win this battle. Um, the only problem is he's, he's distant from the group that's actually going to have to charge the hill at this one key scene. And so we see this scene of him on the radio just barking orders to go up straight up the hill when the captain who's there with the men sees that if we go up this hill, literally every single one of us, one, every single one of my men is going to die. Every one of them. We will not send a single man up this hill successfully. 
and he's just barking. You have to go. You, you got to go. And nobody barks like Nick Nolte. He doesn't even read a line of dialogue. He just barks it. Um, and the result is this: the the captain there with his squad, that he makes the decision to disobey a direct order. He says, "I'm not going to send my men up here. You don't understand the situation." And the kind of the movie presents these these twin images of leadership. This is not to glorify, you know, neglecting the chain of command in the military or anything like that. I just think it's a powerful example of what happens when detached leadership is, is leading and making the decisions. Josh and I would agree this is not the proper lesson to take from this text. It seems to run utterly contrary to the sort of servant leadership that Jesus talks about. So what does this passage teach then? What does it teach? I think fundamentally what this, teach, what this passage is teaching us with their response to the problem is about the Christian division of labor. It's almost a proto-body of Christ teaching. You know, Paul's going to develop that idea later on in his letters that the, the church, when it's functioning well, is like a body. Every person is a, plays a different part. They're a different member of that body. One person's the foot, one person's the hand, one person's the head, one person's the heart, one person's the brain. You know, this goes on indefinitely. And his point is, everyone has been designed uniquely by God to play a significant role in the healthy functioning of the church. But that doesn't mean everyone has the same function. Not everyone has the same function. If, if the body's made up of all feet, that sounds like, like a horrible movie I don't want to see. It sounds terrifying. A foot monster. No, in its diversity, you find this unity that allows it to function healthily. So this feels like the early seedlings of that kind of teaching coming onto the, onto the, into the fray here. So first of all, no, the apostles weren't doing anything well. They were essentially being asked to oversee every aspect of the church's ministry. And imagine how many thousands of people are a part of the church now. They're just not able to do it. And their own blind spots are creating this situation where vulnerable widows are not getting their food. The system isn't working. system isn't working. Number two, they couldn't let their foundational teaching ministry get crowded out. The issue isn't, should they teach or should they be amongst people? The, the, the issue is, uh, they need to do both, uh, but they certainly cannot abandon their teaching ministry. These were the 12 people commissioned by Jesus to be his authoritative representatives throughout this unique period of human history, establishing the church that's hopefully going to last 2,000 years and on until the return of Jesus. Their teaching is the very foundation of the New Testament text that we have as our authoritative scripture today. So no, they can't abandon, they can't leave behind, is what they're saying, that teaching ministry. But they also affirm that this widow care ministry, for lack of a better word, is utterly crucial as well. We can't, we can't ignore this either. The word ministry is used for both. This is an indication that Christian ministry is not just preaching and teaching. It's the whole, it's every function of the church living itself out in community. So the answer is that it's time to start sharing the leadership load. It's time to start multiplying and empowering leaders for service. Finding new people who can step in and fill the gaps, see the blind spots, and address the issues that the church has. It's time for the 
early church to start viewing themselves as members of a body together. And Door of Hope, this is how we ought to view ourselves as well. Each of us. So I have four quick points of application for you. And this is you as an individual, not the person sitting next to you. Well, I guess for them too, but for you primarily. Hear this for yourself. Number one, do you believe that you were meant to participate as a member of the body of Christ? That you have a function and a role to play? Whether you're a person of color or white, man, woman, young, old, single, divorced, married, whatever it may be, do you believe that you have a function, a necessary service, necessary ministry to contribute here in this community? Believing is half the battle. I don't believe that this kind of participation can happen just by attending a Sunday service. I think the vision is people who know one another, are known by one another, and can uniquely slot into the life of the church alongside one another. Number two, have you identified your talents, your spiritual gifts, your passions in life and ministry? Not everyone has. Some of you may have. But do you know how God has hardwired you? The unique ways he's created you as an individual to contribute to the health of our community here. If not, this is a a call to explore that. How did God make you uniquely to be a blessing to our church and the world that looks at it? Number three, are you pursuing Christian maturity? Did you notice the, the criteria held up? The apostles say, okay, we need to find, find people to serve this ministry, but look, they have to be of good repute. They have to have a good reputation. What that means is they need to have personal integrity and it needs to be demonstrated across time with consistency. That's what a good reputation is built on. Number two, he says, they have to be full of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches us that on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost, every believer, when they believe, is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. But his, the fullness of that Spirit, the filling of that Spirit, can come and go. That's why Paul commands us in Ephesians to be filled Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Give him influence and control over your life. Number three, he says, full of wisdom. Full of wisdom as well. I don't think we need to, I don't think it takes much arguing uh, to note that anybody in any position of leadership or followership within a community who lacks wisdom is going to be problematic. It's going to cause issue. So are we all pursuing Christian maturity that when the day comes when we feel confident that, oh, I I see an issue that needs to be addressed and I feel like I'm the one that could perhaps step in and serve in this way, are you going to be qualified when that day comes to actually do it? Pursue maturity. And the last one that kind of sums up all of this is be known by the community. You see what happened? The apostles say, look, congregation, look for people like this. And let us know who you find. It's the congregation who identifies the people, which means they, these people need to be known because there could be someone with a good reputation some, so far, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, godly character, sincere belief, theological maturity. 
But if nobody knows them, if they haven't opened their lives up to the community, then they're not going to be the, the person put into this, into this role. So we need to all be known by the community. So that's what happens. The apostles hear the problem, and they say, we're going to fix this, and we're going to fix it now. This cannot be allowed to stand. Perhaps they repented before God of, of the neglect. And they say, congregation, bring me seven men like this. I can fill this hole. So what do they do? Verses 5 and 6, they implement the system. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them, effectively commissioning for this ministry before the church. Something interesting to note is that all seven of these men that are chosen for this ministry have Greek names. They're probably a part of the grieved party. The congregation decided, yeah, you're right, we've had a big blind spot here. Let's make absolutely certain that these uh, Greek-speaking women are not neglected. We're going to make sure people from their close cultural background are the ones administering this. I think there's wisdom in that. Number two, the apostles prayed and laid hands on the seven, commissioning them for this ministry. But I think we see that this ministry actually goes, their ministry goes far beyond the specific task of this widow care ministry. In fact, in the next couple chapters of Acts, Stephen is going to become the main character as he becomes embroiled in this evangelistic controversy and is ultimately the first Christian martyr witnessing to Jesus. So I think what we see here is the fact that the apostles don't give up ministry with people, and these seven don't give up the ministry of the word, of witnessing. They each have a ministry specialization, a primary focus, but every Christian is called to the full counsel of what God has revealed. The Great Commission says we're to teach everyone to obey all that the Lord has commanded. And so we're all going to try to live out our Christian lives in the full, with the full robustness of what's said. We may have a ministry specialty. For the apostles, it was rightly the teaching ministry, but it wasn't their only thing. For Stephen, he was to care for the widows. That was not the only thing. He was a faithful witness to the point of death, as we're going to read about in the next couple chapters. So what happens? Conclusion. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a, many great, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this issue was sorted out. There will be other issues. We'll read about them in Acts. But this issue was dealt with. They dealt with it quickly. They dealt with it efficiently. And the result was that the gospel continued to go out effectively that the world was no longer able to look at the early church and say, yeah, we're, you guys are just like us. There's no difference. Oh, yeah, is this good news, such good news? If you're a Greek-speaking woman, 
is it? They were able to deal with it, that they might witness to the character of God more effectively. And the result is that more and more people are being added to the faith, even amongst the priesthood in Jerusalem. Just pretty amazing. So two last points of application. First, we need to handle our weaknesses and blind spots as a community. Of course, in humility, in grace, in love, in hope. But we need to press into our opportunities for growth. Where we are failing to reflect the vision of God for his church in our lives individually and certainly as a, as a community together, we are hindering our ability to actually show people the goodness of the God who loves them to the degree that he would die for them willingly to redeem them. By the way that we love one another internally, we tell the watching world what God is like. John 13, 35, Jesus himself said, by this all people will know that they are my disciples. If you love one another. If you love one another. So we need to grow. We need to grow. And it's not going to be any one of us individually who's going to be able to solve this. It's going to be all of us as a community together finding and plugging these holes. Number two, we need to continue to share the good news of Jesus unencumbered. The end result of all this is that the gospel continued to be preached with greater effectiveness. And it wasn't just the apostles' responsibility. It was the whole community's responsibility together and then individually out in the course of life where they worked, where they lived, in their families, with their friends. The gospel must be preached. We have to live in such a way that it communicates, it validates that this is good news, that the God of the universe is good news in his love. So for me, this is challenging. It's convicting. My prayer for us is that we will be a community uh, so committed to repentance and so committed to chasing down the good vision that God has for us as a church um, that we'll be willing to enter into those hard conversations about ourselves as individuals and about ourselves as a community and emerge the other side more effective to show Portland that Jesus is good news. The gospel is good news. No matter how far one may feel, no matter how distant, God has bridged that distance decisively by entering into human history and dying on a cross that he offers a hope for the world, the forgiveness of sin, right restoration of relationship with God, a new family to belong to, a loving family we pray to belong to, and a future hope that every ounce of sin, sickness, death, evil is going to be wiped from the earth. And an eternity future where every tear gets wiped, every longing gets satisfied. We live in perfect harmony with one another, with our world, and with the creator God of the universe. Is that good news? It's good news. That's why this matters so we can tell that story unencumbered and faithfully.